Welcome to Books of Titans. I'm Jason Staples, together with Eric Rostad, and this podcast is dedicated to the influences of influencers, the books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectual scientists, and others. And we'll talk about what makes these books so important and influential, and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about these important works. Today, we're going to cover the book Walden by Henry David Thoreau a book focused on sticking it to the man while being removed from the man. (laughs) Uh, Good old Tim Ferriss recommended the book. He's at tim.blog, which reminds me, a good friend of mine named Josh had the wherewithal to purchase josh.com back in the day, but failed to set it to auto-renew. So he lost josh.com, but he, he did own it for a while. I always give him a hard time about that because man, he could have he could have sold that for so much money. <laughs> so we 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 know Tim. I wanted to pull out a few uh, different things about him. Uh, he holds a Guinness World Record in Argentine tango, and there's also this thing called the Tim Ferriss effect. In 2012, author Michael Ellsberg coined the phrase the Tim Ferriss effect in a Forbes profile. The phrase was used to describe the influence a blog post on Ferris's site had on the sales of Ellis's, Ellsberg's book. Ellsberg found that his post on Ferris's blog sold more books than a piece in the New York Times and a three-minute segment on CNN. So there's some uh, some influence influence for you from uh, from Sir Ferris himself. So the book we're reading uh, or discussing today is Walden, author Henry David Thoreau. Born in 1817, died 44 years later in 1862. He he was an American essayist, essayist, poet, philosopher, abolitionist, naturalist, tax resistor, development critic, surveyor, and historian. He was good friends with Emerson, and I believe Walden was was property owned by Emerson. Um, And then uh, Thoreau lived on other properties owned by, by Emerson in, in his lifetime. And despite being dead, he has quite the active Twitter following following <laughs> with 37,400 followers at Thoreau page. So you can check that out. It's just a lot of quotes that, uh, that a lot of which we'll, we'll be reading today and going over. Um, but a lot of quotes from, from Walden and some of his other, other writings. So anything, anything to add there? Um, not much. I mean, I, I think if you, uh, want to learn more about Thoreau, there's plenty of, uh, plenty of stuff, uh, out there. I mean, the guy's been studied, uh, quite a bit, ironically, actually in many, many, uh, universities and so on since. So yeah, not much more to say about that, but let's go ahead and, uh, get to talking about the book. Uh, start with, uh, some big picture reflections. Uh, yeah, this one is one that... Honestly, uh, I was a little embarrassed not to have read previously, uh, you know, as a an allegedly educated man learned, and learned man. Yeah, as an allegedly learned man, this is uh, this is one book that I really should have read uh, before undertaking this project uh, of going through these uh, these books for the podcast. So I was uh, really, really excited, actually, to get the chance to read this one. This one was one of the ones right at the top of my list uh, when when Eric uh, first 
uh, started putting this uh, this this list together, it's like, oh yeah, that one's one I really want to make sure I read because, you know, I should have read it already. Yeah, uh, and same, same with me. And it didn't disappoint, frankly. Uh, yeah. I I actually was was I I found I got more out of the book than I expected to, uh, and this is certainly what we're on book uh, eighteen here uh, of the of the list. Uh, mm-hmm. This is certainly one of the best books on this list, and one that I would recommend uh, pretty much every reader. You need to read this. It, it's it's a book that it's going to uh, to challenge, maybe in some cases upset, uh, but certainly uh, confront every reader who takes a look at it, and and that's that's by design. And I think he 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 forces. Uh, he forces us to to reconsider what's really valuable in life and what what are we really what are we really here doing like what are we messing around doing like what are we willing are we really willing to put our money where our mouth is in terms of what we truly value or are we really just paying lip service to what we say we value while we actually have other other agendas in mind are we really are we willing or are, are, do we want to be you know just uh instruments of the man or do we want to actually be human beings who uh who do something of worth in our lives and you know in Steve Jobs uh language you know put a put a ding or a dent in the universe uh all, all that's there in in Walden and it's uh it's definitely something that I uh I I recommend every reader read at least read through the first half of it uh the the portions dealing with uh the more philosophical material, uh, because, eh, you know, the, once he gets into the, um, uh, the naturalistic reflections on, uh, on the, uh, uh, the, the, on Walden Pond and, you know, this is how deep it was at this time of year and all that. I found that pretty worthless, but, uh, the, the other portion before that was, was great. I'm sure that that part is worth something to, scientists and naturalists today who are looking at maybe the impact of climate change or something like that you know how much things have changed now from then sure that that's all fine and dandy but uh, i really you know i don't yeah, care yeah, all but, that much but, about that but if they if they miss the second part of the book they miss the most epic battle scene i've ever read well that 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 is that is true i forgot about that that is true and of course i'm referring to the the epic ant battle I never, before reading this book, I never knew such a thing existed, and I, I was just blown away. I mean, he went into detail about how ants were just sitting there, like, chewing each other's legs off and, you know, gnawing at heads to get them off, and, and like, it was an epic battle between two different groups of ants, yeah. and he just sat there and watched it. One colony against another, and he just had the leisure to uh, sit there and... Tell it, give us the play-by-play, and and actually, you know, he he would have done pretty well as a play-by-play commentator, frankly, because he did a he did a nice job uh, summarizing how all that went. It was uh, it was riveting there. So yeah, read the first half read that and part. that, and the, and the ant battle, <laughs> and the ant battle. You got to read the ant battle. So if if uh, <laughs> if you are unfamiliar with the book, basically Thoreau took two years of his life and lived at Walden Pond, and. Then wrote about it. He was there for two years, two months, and two days. The book is actually presented as a one calendar year, but the actual time that he spent in Walden Pond was was the, those uh, little more than two years. 
And this and, is something. And, and I just didn't for know. the record, he was a squatter at Walden Pond. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He just decided I'm going to build my house here on somebody's property. Yeah. So, you know, being able to do this in in this day and age, probably not unless you, uh, you know, get a get a camouflage tiny house or something. Uh, probably not going to be able to do what what he did. But what I found interesting, and I didn't know until reading this book, is that he spent a lot of his childhood here. So. In a way, this is almost a, a taking back to, to childhood, the innocence of childhood, the simplicity of childhood, and and trying to to recapture that in in some way. And so I actually connected with that a lot, uh, and, and was discussing a little bit. But um, that's the basic premise. It's the book the book is called Walden and Civil Disobedience. So he he also gets into some uh, well uh, uh, some civil civil avoidance. disobedience. Civil disobedience is actually a separate uh, treatise, a separate pamphlet oh, okay. that is usually added on to Walden, and it's def definitely added on to the edition that I chose to read. Uh, one of which was the uh, you know there was a there was some audio book. Uh, there's an audio book actually. I um <laughs> I made the mistake of. Uh, purchasing uh the audiobook through audible and that that in itself wasn't the mistake actually uh when when getting ready for uh for this uh for this project because uh, the, the mistake that i made was I, I purchased the book through audible only to discover after i had finished the book you know and was you know dealing with all the notes and everything that i'd taken that I had also purchased the book, another edition of the audiobook through Audible, like three or four years ago or five years ago oh, when wow. I intended to read it then. Well, where's so, Amazon's uh, big data helping you to uh, to realize that? Yeah, well, I think it's probably in their interest to make sure that I do buy it twice. So, yeah, eh, you know, that's the way it works. But uh I mean, I actually the audiobook was very well done, so I, I I don't have too many complaints. But uh, I did cost myself a credit with that one. Oh well. Ouch. Well, let me preface just with, uh, for the reason that he went to the woods for for two years. This is a pretty famous paragraph that if you've watched uh, Dead Poet Society, you've probably heard parts of this. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see it if I could not learn what it had to teach and not. When I came to die, I discovered that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear, nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put, a route, put to route all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. And if proved to be mean, why then to get the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world, or if it were sublime to know it by experience and be able to give a true account of it in my next excursion. For most men, it appears to me, are in strange uncertainty about it, whether it is of the devil or of God, and have somewhat hastily concluded that it is the chief end of man here to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we can hit in the conclusion, we can we can discuss if, if he reached his uh his goal of uh lib living deliberately but uh that was his stated purpose for for going into the woods um and and like like you jason i had a great appreciation for this work had never read it before and uh was it took me a while to get through it i actually it took me two weeks it should have only taken one but for some reason i just 
I mean, it's a it's a relatively short book, but uh, for some reason, it just took me a while to. to it actually get to took it. me it, even even though I I did a a good portion of this via audiobook, it actually took me a little while as well. But and I think that's partly because the it's one of those books that that uh you do have to you have to chew on some. Yeah, and I think that might have been it. It's this is not one that I, I I struggled with at all, but it's one that did take me a little longer just because I I kept wanting to reflect a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, going through the notes just even to prepare for this, uh, it's it's amazing how much is packed in the book and and how much really good stuff. So let's let's get into that uh, that good stuff. Uh, you want to start with a with a quote, your one of your favorites. Yeah, and I've got. I mean, this book. Ha- I mean, I I I really liked this book a lot, and it's got a ton of of things that I could list as a favorite quote here. I mean, it just. Uh, I'm having to to cut out some of my favorites. Just to narrow down to the the absolute favorites, I could, we could be here all day with with a lot of the ones that I liked. But um, let's see. Uh, one 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 of my favorites here. Uh, is every generation laughs at the old fashions, but follows religiously the new. I had a star by that one. Oh man, that was good. <laughs> and, and and actually, that reminded me of uh, C.S. Lewis's. Uh, there's a C.S. Lewis uh, essay that I I have every introductory class that I teach. I require them to read this this little essay that was actually the uh, preface to a, 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 an edition of um, Athanasius. On the Incarnation, when Lewis initially published it, but now it's published separately as a part of an essay collection called On the Reading of Old Books, where Lewis talks about how, you know, basically every every generation looks back on prior generations and 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 things that they agreed upon and just says, well, how could they have how could they have believed that? Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, and of course others will come along after us and ask the same thing, and you know, we we're all victims of fashion intellectually and, and otherwise and uh for lewis the 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 best way to insulate oneself from that is to make sure that you read books from other eras read the old books he says because you know the best solution would be to read the books from the next generation but since those aren't yet written and we don't have access to them the only way we can go is to go backwards and and be critiqued by those who came before us and uh the the foreignness of their fashions and the foreignness of their voice can at least help us a little bit there. And, and I found I found Thoreau to be doing that in his own era. And of course, Thoreau is really big in this on the importance of reading the classics and reading the stuff that has stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. So he and Lewis are of a piece there. Uh, and did, was, did Lewis have a formula for that? Like uh, you should read yes, one actually. book to every two yeah, he new said, ones? He says uh, uh, that... As a, that it's a good rule uh, that for every one newer book or more modern book, book of your own era you read, you should read two old books. And he said, and if that's too difficult for you, if that's too much, then at least try to do one-to-one. Yeah. It's good, a good rule. Uh, my first favorite quote is a famous one. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. That's uh, pretty pretty evident. (laughs) 
So you got nothing more to say on that one. That's all I gonna got. Let it speak to your speak for itself. I'm gonna let that one speak for itself. <laughs> all right. Um, another another one that I really liked. Um, <laughs> most men appear never to have considered what a house is, and are actually, though needlessly poor, all their lives, because they they think that they must have such a one as their neighbors have. And he goes into that too, and talking about building his own house and how he wouldn't trade that for, for you know, a luxurious house. Well, yeah, I mean, he he talks about how luxury and and one of and a couple of my other quotes. My next one actually will be uh, uh, addressing that. He talks about how luxury can interfere with other things, but with the with the higher pursuits of life. But you know what what he's really getting at here is, you know. What do you really need? What do you really value in a house? What do you really value in your living scenario, in your living situation? And how much of it, how much of what you are actually pursuing is something way beyond that? And, and you know, you're, you're actually working for stuff that you don't really actually at the end of the day want or need. And he's like, if you just considered like getting a house that only had the space and amenities that you actually wanted or needed then it'd be a lot cheaper and you wouldn't have to work as much and you'd be happier and all of that. But because you think your house needs to have all the stuff that your neighbors does, well, now you're going to be working for a long time. So what's the, what's the quote? It's like, uh, you spend all your time in a job you hate to impress neighbors you don't like. My, my next quote goes right in with that. For a, for a man is rich in proportion to the number of things that he can afford to let alone. Good, good rule to live by. And uh, I'll connect one other one with that. And the cost of a thing is the amount of what I will call life, which is required to be exchanged for it immediately or in the long run. That's a good, good way to think of, of things that we purchase is, you know, how much time does this cost me in, in, in work or, or time away from the things I love? How much is it going to cost me now? You know, if I, if I pay for it right now or in the future, if I pay for it with debt, uh, how much time is this thing going to cost me? Or if we, and we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, you know, about how time really is money, uh, mm -hmm. that money is liquid time in that sense. Another way to think about that is, is to think about it as life. It's not just time. It's life. Yeah. How much of my life am I spending for this thing? Like I'm, I'm actually giving up my life for X. How much of how much of my life is it worth? And he he forces that economic uh, equation to be considered over and over again through this book. And that that to me is 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 really probably the biggest value of the book. Mm -hmm. is it just forces in a lot of ways this is a this is a uh, a meditation that serves very much the same kind of uh, purpose as the book of Ecclesiastes or Kohelet in the uh, in the Hebrew Bible mm -hmm. where you know it's basically saying listen you're going to die you're going to die at some point now what what's really valuable then in light of the fact that you're going to die what are you going to do what's really valuable to you and then how much of the things that you are pursuing are really just chasing after wind to use Ecclesiastes terminal or, or uh, a turn of phrase there. How much are you just chasing after the wind? 
in spending your life after this thing that really has no value that, that when you actually take a step back and you look at it, you go, Oh yeah, that's kind of worthless. And that's what he just, he wants the reader to count, come to face, face to face with that over and over and over again. So that was actually one of my favorite quotes as well. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll build on that with the next one. Most of the lux- the luxuries and many of the so-called comforts of life are not are, are are not only not indispensable, but positive hindrances to the elevation of mankind. And he, he basically elsewhere he says, you know, luxury just basically is its own is its own fruit. It 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 just produces you know softness and and nothing nothing more basically. It doesn't actually produce anything anything value, anything of value, anything of, of permanence, anything that makes human beings, you know, happier and nicer to one another. And, and, and if anything, the opposite. <laughs> yeah. He, you're fighting to get them. Yeah. Since, since you have something that's really nice, now you'll fight to defend it and now, or you'll fight to go and get it from someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like, that was a good one. I see you've got some on education, so I'll, I'll get us rolling on some uh, education quotes. Uh, and in this one, he's referring to the the young the young person <laughs> who goes to college. And here's where the quote quote starts: While he is reading Adam Smith, Ricardo, and Say, he runs his father in debt irretrievably. This was a just a hilarious uh, quote. So while yeah, while yeah. the kid is sitting there reading about economics and and uh and debt and money his father is actually going into debt to such a degree that uh it'll be hard to get out of it so that he can read about he can read about it student loans man right yeah right or uh as a, a quote from a movie that you and i both love this is the 19th century version of you wasted $150,000 on an education you could have got for for a dollar 50 in late fees at the public library right yep that's yep. that, that that's Thoreau's ver- like Thoreau has a whole section that's basically his version of that quote from Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. Where uh <laughs> I love I love where he says uh the, w- w- pertaining to education, the things for which the most money is demanded for university education are never the things which the student most wants. <laughs> and oh is that, that if if Thoreau were alive today, he'd be going, "See, I told you, it's even worse now." Yeah. Because it, then he's pointing to tuition, right? He says, tuition, for instance, is an important item in the term bill. While the far more valuable education, which the person gets by associating with the most cultivated of his contemporaries, no charge for that, uh, for the for far more valuable education, which he gets by associating with the most cultivated of, of his contemporaries, no charge is made. And, you know, again, the, the real value for him of going to college is... You get to be around culti- other cultivated people for you know interesting conversations and all of this, and you know that you're, you're that's actually not the thing you're getting charged for. Yeah. Well, now <laughs> it's even worse, right? Because most of the the bloat in higher education isn't going even to pay your professors and do you know pay the things that that you'd imagine tuition would be for. It's to pay for the really cool facilities and the the student recreation center and you know, athletics and uh, although in many cases, athletics is a separate entity in terms of the budget line. So, you know, but either way, 
uh, it still feeds into the overall bloat. Uh, but or, uh, you know, really cool, you know, luxury style dorms that will be nicer than any place you will ever live the rest of your life. Thanks in part to the debt that you're racking up to go to Scott and go to college to begin with. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, he is ahead of his time. Like it, it, it's one of those things when you when you look at, uh, at an old book. And again, this is this is what C.S. Lewis says about old books. Uh, uh basically the the benefit of old books is the new ones haven't been tried out right the new ones haven't really been uh they haven't been tested yet and so you know the problem is that you you don't know whether the, you, unless you're really an expert generally speaking and even the experts can be deceived the problem is that the the new books aren't completely tested out yet the old ones have had long enough that, you know, basically whether or not they stay applicable and whether or not they really, uh, they really still speak truth to, you know, two generations later when people go, wow, that guy really got it. Mm -hmm. That's the test. Well, this one is one of those, right? It's like, oh man, (laughs) what he said then was true then. And it's even more true now. Right. And that's the, the real test of a, uh, of, of a great, old book and you know this one passes the test i'd say nine times out of ten there are a few places where i look at him and i go "Eh," but you know those those were few and far between yeah well and and read your navigation quote there because that that was (laughs) awesome yeah so this is another one you know i've got this one in the show notes is definitely on my favorite list where he says to my astonishment i was informed on leaving college that i had studied navigation if I'd taken one turn down the harbor, I should have known more about it. <laughs> and again, that's that's so true that you get business majors that I, like some of the some of the business majors that 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 I've been friends with over 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 my uh, over my years since college. And you know, you of course uh, majored in business, so you can relate to this. Like I, I talk to them about business or entrepreneurship or whatever. And both they and I are shocked by what they did not learn and what they should have learned in business school. It's like, how in the world did we cover like this, this aspect of things, which has never been valuable, which has no relevance to anything that I've done in business, in the business world since, but we didn't cover that. Yeah. The one, the one that always, and and I'm speaking as someone who went through undergrad and grad school for international business, and we did not have (laughs) one lecture on pricing. <laughs> how do you price your product or service? How like what goes into that? Um, if you if you are in the service industry, how do you how do you price that? Do you price it based on, you know, does does uh, if you work for someone uh, like a, a small client, do you, is it the same charge for a huge client? You know, like a ba- you know basics here, and and never never discuss that. So, and and you know to for. For business school, they're really geared towards getting you to work in a uh, corporation. I mean, that's that's the classes are are about working in a corporation, not necessarily doing your own thing. But well, there's now there's now way. schools of entrepreneurship that have that have begun. I mean, I, there was a huge grant, for example, or a huge gift that is uh, given to Florida State uh, University, for example, where I I graduated from uh, to uh, to start a 
a really innovative entrepreneurship uh, program there. Uh, my wife was an entrepreneurship minor at UNC, but even in those class, even in those cases, you know, there's so much stuff where it's like, how in the world did that not get covered? Well, and, and what I saw, because I had entrepreneurship courses in grad work that changed my life, but the, it was because of one professor and he, he, uh, this is going to shock you, but he was actually an entrepreneur. Oh, wow. So they actually let an entrepreneur teach the course, whereas all the other professors, I, I was just lucky that I got him because all the other professors were not entrepreneurs. So you had guys t teaching entrepreneurship <laughs> that had never actually started a company. And so all you're doing there is just looking at textbooks about entrepreneurship. Um, but, I, but I was fortunate that, that the guy had actually taught it. He'd gone bankrupt. He'd, um, you know, he'd seen the highs and the lows and, and learned, learned a lot from him. But, but I think most most of the programs out there are, are going to be taught by non-entrepreneurs. And, and, and in order to be, you know, truly, uh, 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 just in my, in, in, in pointing to, you know, business school where it's an easy one to, to talk about that, that this stuff's true in my field as well. I mean, people graduate from religious studies uh, with a religious studies, uh, program from a religious studies program or a classics program or whatever. You get someone that you, you can graduate from w with a classics degree and never have read, say, the Timaeus or the Republic. It's totally possible. Yeah. You can you can pass your Ph.D. exams in uh, in, you know, in, in, a, in, in an area of, say, say, New Testament or something like that and not really have a, a, a good grasp of some of the prime, some of the major primary texts. But if you can, if you can, you know, it, it, uh, speak intelligently about what certain scholars have said in other areas, then that's fine. Yeah. It, it seems to me, uh, it's more about the criticism of it. And so what I saw, like a, a good buddy of mine out of college, we would meet once a week and, and talk about books and talk about, uh, life. And, um, he was a literature major and, and he was, he was getting his PhD in literature and, and just burned out to the point where, where he quit mid mid program. And we would talk like, so surely you've read Moby Dick and, and what do you think of it? It's like, Oh, well, I, I actually never read Moby Dick and well, surely you've read this book. No, I actually, but, but we read uh, about how that book was a result in the author was, it was because he was, he was part of the British empire and they were in uh, India at the time. So it, it was, you know, a, it was written from this point of view. So I, I can tell you all about this particular book from that vantage point, but I've actually never read the book. <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly what I've found in my field as well. People don't, it's, people, it's a shame. people, yeah. and, and even in some cases I haven't uh, read everything that I should have, but uh, I've, I've been more fastidious about trying to read that stuff than most. But the the general thing is that we substitute the second thing the 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 learning the scholarship about rather than doing the the thing itself and and again that's what so much of this book is about is mm -hmm. that that aspect of you know not not sacrificing the 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 higher for the lower right not going for learning criticism over actually reading the book right and uh, and and actually one of my next quotes is is precisely about that where he says it is life near the bone where it is sweetest. You are defended from being a trifler. No man loses ever on a lower level by magnanimity on a higher. 
Superfluous wealth can buy superfluities only. Money is not required to buy one necessity, not one necessary of the soul. And to abbreviate that, basically, he says, listen, giving up something on the, you, to focus on the higher level of things, you don't lose on the lower levels to do that. And, and so he wants to, he wants to really point out that in order for life to be better, you have to really reassess all the, uh, you know, at, at, at various points what's truly valuable and focus on what's truly valuable. And if you do that, you don't lose anything by sacrificing the stuff that's not valuable for it. When he's got a quote about news where <laughs> you read the news and by the time it's the afternoon, it, it's, it's really not applicable anymore. And uh, one thing just cha- not... he says, if you just change the names, the, the same thing will be there tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> and I, this probably is not going to be a good, overall trend in my life. But this year I I've completely given up news. And the main reason is so I can get through these books and have, <laughs> have the time to do that. I mean, I, I used to, I used to subscribe to the, the New York times. I would get it every morning and, and pour over it for, for a long time. Um, and then just, uh, you know, recently I'll just get caught up in, um, in, uh, the different feeds of news and, and it just was not good. And so I, I've, I've gone the other side of the pendulum and just completely given it up this year. And, and, and my wife will tell me what's going on every now and then, but otherwise I, I have not missed a thing. And I mean, to, to be able to read some of these books and have the time to do that instead of, uh, going through news, it's definitely the, uh, the better thing. So long-term I'm probably, you know, missing out on, on keeping up with things, but, uh, so far it's been, been pretty, pretty relieving. Yeah, and and he actually says some things about that in terms of uh, his lack of concern for government. I'm pretty sure this was in the uh, on on civil disobedience, but uh, I think it's fair since most editions have that in there as well. That he he talks about how, you know, honestly, like why are we really concerned about government? Um, like government really doesn't matter that much, frankly. Uh, and he talks about this, you know, that that. Uh, here, let me find it. It, it. Yeah, this is the quote. He says, the government does not concern me much and I shall bestow the fewest possible thoughts on it. It is not many moments that I live under a government, even in this world. If a man is thought free, fancy free, imagination free, that which is not never for a long time appearing to be to him, unwise rulers or reformers cannot fatally interrupt him. And actually, this gets me to to thinking about, you know, there's so like, I, you know, I'm, I'm in higher ed and a lot of my colleagues are just wringing their hands constantly on social media, in the hallway, everywhere else about our about the, the current president of the United States and the potentially, you know, all of the negative things in, in, in the uh, in the current administration. And while I agree with them that the current president is an embarrassment to the United States and that, you know, I, I don't approve of, of the way that the current administration handles a great many things. At the same point, I felt about the last administration that there were a great many things that the last administration did that I really didn't think were good ideas, that they were, they were the right way to go about things. And, you know, the funny thing is, almost nothing that either one has done has had really direct impact on most people's 
actual everyday lives. Yeah. And yes, yes, it's important to, you know, if there's, if there's going to be some major impact on, 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 on lives and so on, I'm, I'm not saying don't complain or don't, you know, take political action. You know, I think that, that there's a time and a place for that, but at the same time, waking up every morning to check the news, to see what idiotic thing was tweeted out. <laughs> it's just a recipe for heartburn. It, the but, the, 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 the funny, tweets that this man makes are really not affecting you. He's just an the idiot. Funny, the funny thing is though, uh, Thoreau says that the only people that ever harassed him in his life were from the government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cut, you know, coming for uh, tax money and stuff. So it's pretty funny. Yeah. So, but again, I mean, it, it, it does lead to a much quieter and, and usually more valuable, valuably spent life. If you're not obsessing over the latest thing tweeted out by some governmental leader. Yeah. Now actually working toward, you know, reform that helps, helps people in various ways and resisting bad legislation and all that. Cause I mean, he talks a good bit and again, this has aged very well in this respect on the same, uh, you know, actually, on the on the next page, after he says that the government doesn't concern me much, he's talking about how abolition of slavery is imperative, and that slavery is a is an embarrassment and a blight upon the United States, and that it would be better for the U.S. to cease to exist than for slavery to continue. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he, he's right, and and he does show that there are there are issues to really get up in arms about. But then there's the, like the, the focus on the obsessive, you know, little things in the news that, you know, dude, don't let it don't let it affect you. Like what what was said there doesn't actually impact you in the least. Just move on and put your attention where it matters. You know, whatever whatever today's slavery issues are, focus on those things and do what you can to fix those. And just voting is probably not going to be enough. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, in line with that, uh I've got a quote. If I knew for a certainty that a man was coming to my house with the conscious design of doing me good, I should run for my life. Yep. That was in my, course, my list as well. <laughs> that one reminds me of uh, Reagan's famous quote of uh, the, the, someone saying, I'm, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And yeah. If someone says that, to run. Yeah. It's the, it's the, the, the scariest wor- words, uh, scariest uh, uh, sentence in the English language. I'm with the yeah. government and I'm here to help. <laughs> Yeah, it uh, reminds me of my dad's old uh, saying about uh, uh, when you see a preacher coming, make sure you grab your wallet and your wife. Up, <laughs> <laughs> oh, preacher's coming. He's you know, I see him coming. All right, where's my wallet? Where's my wife? All right, I'm good. <laughs> Speaking of preachers, you've got a you've got a religious quote here. Yeah. Um, so he 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 critiques uh, the the constant the constant building of building projects that everybody's engaged in and you know civilizational building and you know the 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 cult of progress and you know that that runs from railroads and you know telegrams in his day to buildings and so on and he says the religion and civilization which are barbaric and heathenish build splendid temples. But what you might call Christianity does not. Most of the stone a nation hammers goes toward its tomb only. It buries itself alive. As for the pyramids, there is nothing to wonder at in them so much as the fact that so many men could be found degraded enough to spend their lives constructing a tomb for some ambitious booby 
whom it would have been wiser and manlier to have drowned in the Nile and then given his body to the dogs. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to let that one speak for itself. Yeah, there's not much we could say on that one. <laughs> it's awesome. So here, here's uh, my, my final one. Um, Thus it seemed that this one hillside illustrated the principle of all of the operations of nature, the maker of this earth, but patented a leaf. And here, here he's, is probably in that. It, yeah. In fact, it is in that second section where he's, he's talking more about his surroundings and the beauty of the lake and foliage and animals and all, all sorts of stuff. And, and this one struck me. Um, and just as, as I walk around with my daughter in, in, areas where there's trees i'm just always i just always marvel and and try to get her to marvel at the simplicity of a leaf and just i mean you pick up a leaf and there's like veins going throughout it that uh, and then you know how that was connected to a tree and and i sometimes i just sit there and look at that leaf and i'm like if if i could just understand everything that went into this leaf i, I mean it's like this holds all the secrets right here and it's just one small leaf. And, and so I love that quote, the maker of this earth, but patented a leaf. And that just one hillside, you know, just going deep into one hillside going for him, Walden spending time in this small area, this one hillside illustrated the principle of all of the operations of nature. I thought that was just brilliant and a, a awesome, awesome thing to, to consider. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and, and again, uh, I, I do want to uh, point out that, 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 that what the way we're reading this book, we're reading the book itself. We're not, we're not spending a whole lot of time on the, uh, on the history of some of the little bit of hypocrisy, for example, that, uh, that actually, you know, under, underlies some of the book. And he's, 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 he doesn't hide it in exactly in terms of uh, his, his own hypocrisy. I mean, he, he brings it up a couple times, but you know, the reality that, Walden wasn't really that far from anything else. And his mother would bring him cookies and, you know, extra provisions and different things at different points that he doesn't really mention. Well, in the book, um, uh, generations that we have coming up that he actually hit on that quite a bit about, uh, Thoreau's Thoreau's hypocrisy. Yeah. Thoreau, Thoreau, you know, was, was a human being and generally speaking, uh, with few exceptions, uh, that, that makes him a, a hypocrite in some areas, but that doesn't negate what he's saying here. No. And, and, and it, I think that it's important to, to read the book, read, read what he actually has to say. And to, again, to take it to heart as much as we can and, 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 and get, you know, get what we can out of it. Yeah. I, w I was actually, uh, you know, in, in, in hearing about this book my whole life, I just assumed that he was a hermit for two years, that he went to the woods <laughs> to be completely by himself. And yeah. so one of the things that really stuck out to me in the book he said he had more contact with people in those two years than at any other point in his life. So he just said there was always people passing by. Uh, and so I, I found that very interesting and something that, uh, that was not, not something I expected in, in just, you know, kind of offhand hearing about the book my whole life. I, I thought he was alone, but he lived alone, but he, uh, he had ample time for, for uh, people and meeting people and neighbors and just uh, a lot of passerbys as well. Which actually ends up being one of the hidden, uh, not the under-discussed uh, positives 
mm-hmm. that he gets out of this in terms of the book and that he tries to emphasize is saying by not working and by just deciding to, you know, live off of somebody else's land, uh, you know, in a little shack for a couple of years, I was able to to do more of the stuff that, you know, with and, and you know, spend more time with people, do more of the stuff that I actually would have wanted to do than I would have done than I would have been able to do if I'd have, you know, tried to go out and make a living for myself, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote, you know, to work. And, uh, you know, that's, that's really where he wants to go with that. So I've got a couple other, uh, little, I guess I'll go with one more favorite quote and then we'll transition. Uh, and this gets to the gist of where vagabonding goes, but I think he does it better than vagabonding. Uh, mm-hmm. and that is the spending of the best part of one's life, earning money, in order to enjoy a questionable liberty during the least valuable part of it, reminds me of the Englishman who went to India to make a fortune first in order that he might return to England and live the life of a poet. He should have gone up to the garret at once. And, you know, that that summarizes a lot of this. To say, wait, if you're doing this in order to get that, then why don't you just get that? Mm-hmm. It comes a lot more cheaply than you expect. And you're wasting so much of your life in order to get what you in order allegedly to get what you want that you you're you're violating your values and you know you're 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 living you're a living contradiction. All right. Well, I mean, there there really isn't much to transition to in terms of getting to more of the details here beyond the the quotes, because so many of our quotes we wound up getting into some of the stuff that we wanted to 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 discuss. Yeah, but, I've, I only have a few few more things, but but before but yeah, that, I, I do and... have to to go back to my uh, my my new my new section, which is Eric's favorite word. Oh yes, I forgot. And I, I I mean this is just unbelievable and and uncanny. But last week we saw the word excrementitious in Bird for Bird, and would you believe it? It showed up again in this book. I believe it. So we have we have two books in a row that have used the word excrementitious. So that that is just serendipitous, and uh, I, I think it just means that we really need to start using it in everyday life. So very happy to see the this word come up again. The second, I, I actually pulled out two favorite words. The next one was ebriosity, which means habitual intoxication, and ironically, it comes in a section where he's talking about not partaking in what we would mainly consider as uh, intoxicating chemicals like wine. Uh, he even, in a, in a blasphemous sentence, says uh, we should get rid of co- coffee and tea. But uh, the sentences of all e- ebriosity, who does not prefer to be intoxicated by the air he breathes? So again, going going to simplicity and uh, not not needing all that, which again... Not needing coffee is is blasphemous to me. I know it's probably your ideal world, Jason. He was correct but, uh, on this. <laughs> coffee so, is coffee is the drink of uh, of dullards and servants of the man. <laughs> so yeah, I wanted I wanted to talk about one thing, and, and this uh, kind of ties in with um, with the number of people that he saw while he was there. The other thing that really struck me is he could constantly hear commerce going on and it mostly took the form of hearing the train. But, uh, it's something I related to because everywhere I've lived recently, if, if it gets really quiet 
in the place where I've been living, I can hear the highway. And I live in Atlanta and I, I've lived off one of the main highways for for the last 15 years. And so even even when you're sleeping, you you always have this sense that there's movement, there's things going on. And when in in one of the one of the greatest things when we travel is to is to get away from that. And I found it ironic that for Walden to or for Thoreau to, to go to Walden for two years to get away from it all. It's like he could still always hear the train. He could still always well, the, hear the train commerce. ran basically right across Walden, like on the yeah. other side. So he was bitter about this the whole way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and he would find it ironic that for you traveling is the uh, is is the way that you uh, find a, a way to get away from the sounds of all the hustle and bustle and travel. So yeah, that's uh, anyway. Um, so uh, so a couple other things worth bringing up here that, that I mean we've already discussed some of his uh, his take on education, some of these things. Um, I do want to revisit a little bit about his uh, his his talk about about houses and about, about where people live. Uh, and one of the things that he points out here is uh, the difficulty of. He, he he basically sets things up to say an average house, I'll, I'll, read the, I'll read the passage, an average house in this neighborhood co- costs perhaps $800, and to lay up this sum will take from 10 to 15 years the laborer's life, even if he's not encumbered with a family, estimating pecuniary value of every man's labor at $1 a day, for if some receive more, others receive less, so that he must have spent more than half his life commonly before his wigwam will be earned. If we suppose him to pay a rent instead, this is but a a doubtful choice of evils. Would the savage have been wise to exchange his wigwam for a palace on these terms? Uh, That, to me, is is a really interesting uh, paragraph or interesting passage. And he, he he continues and he says, If it is asserted... That civilization is a real advance in the continu- in the condition of man, and I think that it is, though only the wise improve their advantages. It must be shown that it has produced better dwellings without making them more costly. And the cost of a thing is the amount of what I will call life, which is required to be exchanged for it immediately or in the long run. And I, I thought that section was, was kind of brilliant, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Just something I was really satisfied with his, uh, again, we've talked about this multiple times on this podcast now, but on this idea that that what money is, like, don't think about it in, ter- in cost terms, about dollars or anything else. I mean, he says, you know, an average house in this neighborhood costs perhaps $800. Imagine Boston now. Uh, yeah. $800,000. Yeah. Uh, but... In terms of how much it, how much life it takes to get that in exchange, that's the real question. And has the cost for things gone up or down or remained the same? And really, for a lot of those things, actually, when you when you get around to it, the nominal cost has gone up, but generally the overall cost is often the same. In some some cities or regions, the the 
overall cost of life, as he called, talks about it, is the same. But again, we, we've talked a lot about this, that money is just a way of trading time and life. And he really makes the most of this, even to the point where he says, well, you know, better to be the day laborer who doesn't make anything than the, than the person who's the boss, because, you know, the day laborer, hey, job's over when, when the sun goes down. The, the boss has to, you know, continue stressing and working and all that. He says, uh, but his employer who speculates from month to month has no respite from one end of the year to the other. And, you know, reframing things in terms of what, what's, what are you getting in exchange for all the life that you're putting into something? There's, there's really something to that. And, and we would do well to think about that more often. And, and this book, I think, does a good job of challenging that over and over again, regardless of how much of a hypocrite Thoreau was himself. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I've met uh, people who, who own companies and they talk about that, the, the difficulty of sleeping some nights in knowing that you're responsible for so many lives and the, the livelihoods of these people and not just them, but you get to meet their families. And so if, if you have a bad day at the office as a owner of a company, it's, it's compound compounded all the more because you're, you're kind of thinking of, well, if, if this continues, then I've got families that'll be out of, I've got employees that'll be out of a job and then families that will suffer because of that. Um, so he, he makes a good point there, but there's, there's gotta be both of those kind of people in the world too. So yeah. And that, that, uh, that, that leads me into, to some discussion on trade as well. I, I didn't really agree with him on, on some of the stuff he said. So I'm going to read one portion and then want to see if you took something different out of this or uh, what your thoughts were on this as well. But I've since learned that trade curses everything it handles. And though you trade in messages from heaven, the whole curse of trade attaches to the business. And I, I, I guess I just don't understand what he's talking about there. Because for me, trade is doing what you do best and then trading that for what someone else does best. So if, if you guys are both doing your best and you're trading that, I don't see what the, the huge curse is or the evil in that. Yeah, I think in terms, I think there's one other place where in terms of trade and how markets work and so on, I tend to disagree with the way that, with the perspective that he took in that I think he fundamentally tended to take a, um, a complete scarcity based approach in that the, the, the way that people make money or the way that people get rich is by necessarily taking advantage of those below them. Or uh, you, you see that in a few cases, uh, you see, you know, some skepticism about, you know, how how markets work at all. So it's a, uh, it's a fixed fixed pie for him. Yeah, I think. I mean, I don't know that he would necessarily entirely go with the fixed pie idea, but he tends. It, it seems to me that he tends more often than not to operate from the assumption of a fixed sized pie mm -hmm. rather than the idea that, you know, you can, you can actually make money. You can actually improve things by increasing the size of the pie. Mm -hmm. And so you're not actually necessarily impoverishing someone else to make your money. You're actually making others better off as well by 
increasing the size of the pie so that there's more to go around. And yeah, your piece is larger, but there's also larger for everybody else. I mean, that's, that's, it's something that we've seen over the years that, you know, the size of the pie can increase. Now, I think his skepticism is warranted in that you can increase the size of the pie, but if the pieces aren't as nutritionally satisfying, then it's a fool's errand. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a Faustian bargain that you've traded all this extra time and so on for luxuries that don't actually improve the real quality of things. Okay. And, and, and so I, I, I think, can see that. I yeah. think, and, I think he's got a point there. And kind of to what we were talking about before with, with too much, having too many things. Um, and it, and it, it makes me think of like a H and M store for clothing where the whole idea is that it's not good quality. You're not, you're not actually in, increasing the quality of clothing in the world. You're decreasing it, but it's so you can throw the stuff away after wearing it a few times because that's all it's meant to last. But is that, is that like a truly beneficial thing to society? Maybe it is, but, uh, but it's, it's worse quality clothing. So, right, right. Exactly. Maybe, maybe that's more of the lines he's, he's going on here. And then, yeah, just uh, he, he kind of had a negative view of, of work. Uh, one, one passage on labor, but labor of the hands, even when pursued to the verge of drudgery, is per perhaps never the worst form of idleness. It has a constant and imperishable moral, and to the scholar it yields a classic result. Uh, so labor of the hands, it sounds like it's, o it's okay for him. D did you get that out of that passage? Say that again. I'm sorry. The labor on. of the hands, even when pursued to the verge of drudgery, is perhaps never the worst form of idleness. It has a constant and imperishable moral, and to the scholar, it yields a classic result. So yeah, he's getting he's he's edging towards kind of where Marx goes with with this this idea that you know it's 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 a it's a almost an inherent good for somebody to labor with with his hands. And generally, they're speaking of a his uh, to labor with his hands for specific, measurable purpose. So, you know, when you when you're building a house and you labor on your hands all no, labor with your hands all day on your hands, it'd be harder to build a house that way. Uh, when you when you're laboring with your hands all day, at the end of the day, you can see progress and you get satisfaction this inherent satisfaction with seeing the immediate fruit of your labor. And that's one of the things that, that Marx is really obsessed with is this idea of in a, in a capitalist system where labor is divided and economies of scale demand that somebody works on something in order to, you know, works on one piece of something and then really only is working in order to obtain the necessary capital to trade for something else and you don't really get to experience or see the the real fruit the real out, outcome the real work of your hands then for marx what that produces is a sense of alienation in a human being where you 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 get the you're detached from the from the labor from the the fruit of the work of your hands and and you have this this uh, gnawing sense of alienation inside that that is not good. And so, you know, the factory worker can't take pride in 
and can't, you know, enjoy the benefits of his work in the same way that, say, a fisherman can who sees the catch and gets to go home and eat the result of his own hands, right? Yeah, and, 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 I, and I can see that and probably even more so today where you're working on a computer or tons of people work in a financial industry where you're making money on money. Right, right. And I, I can see that. And, yeah. and, and so the complaint for Marx is basically, you know, and he's again, he's drawing on that same insight like, you know, oh, you know, uh, uh, tomatoes grown in your own garden are so much tastier than the ones that you buy at the store, right? Now, in a double-blind test, you probably couldn't tell the difference. And in fact, they've done some tests on this, and people can't tell the difference between what they've, what they've grown in their own garden as a rule or what they bought in a store. But if they know they grew it in their garden, they do enjoy it more. All right, so then why... So what, what happens if that guy grows so many tomatoes that he can't possibly consume them all, and as a result, he has to trade... Yeah, see that then that's he turns where this, into a bad man for Well, see for that's where this that that's where this comes into that's where the problem uh draws and you know for Marx the idea is well you shouldn't work to produce that excess basically or you shouldn't have to. And even mm. if you do you you're actually getting to trade the full product of the work of your hands for something that's the full product of someone else's. So that kind of trade is okay. Mhm. Mm but it's, you know, it's when you get capitalized to now where you're working for someone else to do a piece of a, you know, a small piece of a work where you can't actually be attached to the work itself. And you're only getting paid a wage rather than having the thing that you're building itself. Then at that point, you're, you're introducing different levels, levels in this. And now you, you're, you're detached from the work of your hands. And that produces that, that, uh, uh, that uh, alienation. Now, again, that's Marx and not uh, and not Thoreau, but I do think Thoreau's on the more or less the same kind of wavelength here, to where he's saying, "Yeah, well, you know, people don't work enough with their hand. Like educated men have forgotten, you know, who are working on these little pieces of this or making money on money. They've forgotten." the benefits of and the lessons taught by going out and building something with your hands. And it's mm -hmm. true. Like when you, when you work on a computer all the time, there really is something satisfying about like getting away and going and chopping wood or, yeah. you know, Only doing something manual where you can, you can look back and you can go, Hey, I just did that. I done did that. Right. Or even just like, look at, look at how, you know, if you work out in the fields as a farmer all day odds that you're a part of say a crossfit gym are pretty diminished <laughs> right those gyms are populated by urban workers, workers or suburban yeah. workers who generally don't do anything with their hands or their bodies and so they've got to get together to actually do something where they can see results and one of the things that crossfit really figured out is you get people to compete with themselves and record their times and their weights and all that in some sort of competitive way. And it's satisfying because you get to see progress. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's something that Thoreau's talking about here. And I, I think he does, I think he's basically right. Yeah. I, 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 and I, I agree with him on that. I, the thing, the, the trade thing still trips me up and especially he writes like glowingly about the fact that Walden Pond 
in wintertime creates ice that is then enjoyed by people from Cairo, Egypt to South America. You know, he, he loves the fact that the, that, uh, that, that, that they can partake of the pond, but that's trade. Yep. Yep. And again, it's the result of some having more and some having less, which he thinks is not, you know, he, he, again, he complains about and he, but he recognizes that it is the way that things are. And in some ways it's not a bad thing, but mm-hmm. he does, he does, he is uncomfortable with it. And I think, okay. it, I think it's actually okay. kind of right for us to be a little bit uncomfortable with it, with yeah, the yeah. results of how things go, even though we are better off if we all have a, an agreed upon way to trade and the marketplace works. Mm-hmm. We just have to be, we have to make sure that the marketplace works efficiently and and well, and that you know some that not everybody uh, that some people aren't completely left behind. Yeah. Okay. That makes it a little more uh, palatable, I guess. So, any anything else you uh, you liked in the uh, or wanted to highlight in the nitty gritty section? Yeah, I guess the last thing is his idea that there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil for every one who is striking at the root. And it may be that he who bestows the largest amount of time and money on the needy is doing the most by his mode of life to produce that misery which he strives in vain to relieve. It is the pious slave breeder devoting the proceeds of every tenth slave to buy a Sunday's liberty for the rest. Yikes. <laughs> and his 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 uh, views on the slave trade have really aged well. His views on slavery have really aged well. His mm-hmm. conscience on this thing and his his calling people to account on this have really aged well. And again, I think that insight that, oh, yeah, you know, that's great that you're giving to charity and that's great that you're doing. But the things that you're doing to get the money that you're delivering, that you're that now you're giving to charity may have actually been the very sorts of things that have caused the conditions that have created the charity. So maybe you shouldn't have, you should just stop doing that. Or in some cases, as you might see by, you know, watching the, the very good uh, documentary Poverty Inc., you might discover that the very means of charity that you, that is being implemented actually sustains and helps create the poverty that is allegedly being fixed by the charity. So, mm-hmm. so it exacerbates it. So I, I, again, I think he would be totally on board with, with that idea of unintended consequences uh, in economics. And, you know, he, he wants to call people to consider what, what are the unintended and in some cases intended consequences of the things that you do that you're supposedly trying to undo by other nice things. And, you know, one, you know, hacking away at the branches with charity or with social programs and so on doesn't fix anything if you don't get to the root that's causing the problems. Yeah. I, I really liked that idea. Yeah. Yeah, this is one of those books. I mean, we could just keep talking forever and ever. I, I really enjoyed it. I really yep. enjoyed it. Yep, I, I did too. So let's go ahead and uh, and wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, first thing I'd say is uh, a lot of important concepts in this book. Um, simplicity, nature, trading time for things. But I don't think you need to go into a cabin in the woods to begin to live to begin to live deliberately. And the interesting thing is at the end of the book, he says that he stopped living at Walden 
after the the two years, two months, because it it had become a routine. Like the the life at the the cabin had become a routine. And I, I think we we still have this idea to some degree. Like we need to find ourselves by getting away, or we need to to travel for a year, or do something like this. And it, it, you see that in this book of you know he 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 had to get away to to Walden. Um, to, to try to get back to, I think he was really trying to get back to, to childhood in a lot of ways. Cause he spent so much time at Walden as a child, but, but trying to get away to get away from it all. But I think one point in, in maybe what we've seen in some of the other books is that you can decide to begin living deliberately right now where you are. You don't, you don't have to get away, uh, in the middle of nowhere to, to do that. I, I think you can start by doing small things each day and, and, and grasping onto some of the concepts that he talks about in the in the book, so that was one one thing. Um, I know Jason, you mentioned that you the second half of the book was not not as uh, thrilling as the first part. I I liked both sections. I mean, the second part for me just kind of made me remember or think of childhood a lot. Um, I, I spent a lot of time outdoors in Minnesota and Wisconsin, especially on lakes. So just Walden. Lake, I, I just kind of pictured the the lake I, I fished on as a kid with my grandpa in Wisconsin, and so that those nature parts, I, I really enjoyed reading those. Uh, he'd get in a canoe in the middle of the night, uh, throw wood, and and go, go out to the middle of the lake and just look at the stars and listen to the sounds, and and I really enjoyed that. And then that, that ant battle, the epic ant battle, was was just priceless. I mean, that that is that was an awesome awesome thing, and I, that I didn't know existed. Um, and, and referring back to one of the other books in, in this series, the, uh, the vagabonding book, which I was not a huge fan of vagabonding is pretty much the modern day version of, of Walden to some degree. And, and in fact, he quotes this book throughout, uh, Rolf Potts does in, in vagabonding just, I know Tim Ferriss loves it, but just skip vagabonding and, and read this one instead. Read Walden. Uh, you'll, you'll get a lot more out of it, I guarantee you. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And, and actually, I mean, we talked about this even in the, in the vagabonding episode. Like half of the, the, the quotes in there that I was like, oh man, I, that's, that's really good. Half of the quotes were from, from Walden to begin with. So, yeah. you know, yep. even reading that one makes you want to read Walden. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And, and, and again, I think he does accomplish what he's trying to do. And he does, you know, this book is really a, a, about trying to get people to assess the true value of everything. Are, are you, are, you know, it, what, what Thoreau wants people to do on reading this book is to ask the question, are you really doing what you truly value? And, and if not, what needs to change? Where do you need to put your time and money to, to be able to put you to be able to put your time and money where your mouth is and where your heart supposedly lies? Or are you just lying to yourself about what you really value? And then an examination you find on examination, you find out that you really actually value other things more. And then if that's the case, are those values the right values? He really wants everyone to reconsider that. And, and this, this last quote is one that I think hammers it home for him. He says, I would not have anyone adopt my mode of living on any account for before, uh, for, uh, for beside that before he has fairly learned it, I, might, I may have found out another for myself. 
I desire that there be that there may be as many different persons in the world as possible. But I would have each one be very careful to find out and pursue his own way and not his father's or his mother's or his neighbor's instead. Find out what really drives you. Find out what you value. Find out what you feel, what what you recognize as, as what you were put on the earth to do and do that. That's really what he wants his reader to do. And this is, this is the, the stimulant or the, uh, the, uh, the, the irritant design that, that, that Thoreau has designed to try to put in, in someone's path to get them to rethink about, uh, to rethink what those things might be. And, and I think mm-hmm. he did a pretty good job of it. I mean, it's not a perfect book, but it's definitely one I think everybody should read. Yeah. Yeah. And, and do what you're made to do, but just don't do it so well that you get excess and then have to trade it. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and <laughs> we'll go ahead and skip that part. <laughs> trade. I, I don't have that problem with trade, but anyway, <laughs> well, that's going to do it for us today. Now, before we get out of here, just a reminder that you can follow along with us at booksoftitans.com. You can also contact us via Twitter or Instagram at books of Titans. And of course, if you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to this podcast. You can find all of our past episodes through iTunes. Well, Apple podcasts now, I guess. The Android Marketplace, Google Play, Stitcher, your podcast manager of choice. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please make sure to give us the most effusive and even unrealistically awesome reviews and five-star ratings everywhere you listen, wherever you listen. And please share your favorite episodes on social media if if you're enjoying it. We'll be back soon to discuss the next book, which will be Dune by Frank Herbert. On behalf of Eric, I'm Jason. This has been the Books of Titans podcast. Keep reading, keep listening, and keep improving. Keep it selectively real. (laughs) Thanks for listening. I made this.